really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. I am your host, David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast. And you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So lots of stuff to talk about this week, and especially six, uh, the Six Nations round two. So let's get right to it. So starting with our current updates, and my current updates this week are really just news about the podcast, or more specifically, upcoming guest appearances. So this week alone, I have some wonderful guests coming on to talk, including Mike Rogers, assistant coach for my beloved Free Jacks, who I just finished speaking with just now, as a matter of fact, as well as Jason Potras, who is our brand spanking new fly half, who I am speaking with tomorrow afternoon. Those two conversations will combine to form one sort of mega bonus episode, which will drop on Thursday. Of course, the start of the new MLR season is this very weekend, which I admit, snuck up on me a bit. <laughs> it seems like it was only last week I was chatting with Phil and the other Outriders on Jack's, the Jack's Rangers show, and we were doing Phil's patented way too early predictions, and now, all at once, it's just here. So, speaking of those Outriders, I have another new guest this week, Chris, a.k.a. Bozo6, again of the Jack's Rangers fame. Uh, but to mix things up, he and I are actually going to talk first two rounds of the Six Nations, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, then, speaking of Six Nations, the incomparable Bernard Jackman has agreed to return to look at the Irish view of how the tournament has gone so far. I imagine he's bouncing off the walls with how good it's been. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I'm actually hearing a lot of pessimism coming from Irish fans. I, I theorize they're just trying to, you know, they're just kind of desperate to ramp down expectations given their World Cup history. But for me, I just don't think it's working. Uh, speaking of Irish fans uh, keeping their reactions, shall we say, a bit muted, Patricia and Grav from the Ruck and Rogue podcast have asked me to join them on their lovely show that we're looking at early March at this point. Also, very excited to announce the return of the incredible Rachel Law, who will be here to chat all things Women's Six Nations. I am properly psyched up for that one. She is a magical individual for sure. And finally, there's no specific date yet, but... Friend of the pod, Will Owen, and his brother, Robbie, have asked me to come on to their World Cup retrospective podcast to talk about the USA Men's Eagles and the 2007 Rugby World Cup. We're still ironing out the details, but it looks like uh, the recording, at least, is going to be happening next week. Uh, either way, I'm just really excited. We'll be talking about the Tonga match. Um, obviously, we won't be talking about the knockout stages. Anyway, I will certainly keep all of you updated. Thanks, as always, to all of my lovely guests for the time and consideration with which they are so generous. It really means a lot. Well, Isa, the news this week had to be the impending departure of Simon Middleton, head coach of the Red Roses. Quoting here from the BBC, The morning after last year's Rugby World Cup finished, Simon Middleton said he didn't think he would ever get over losing a second successive final to New Zealand. The England head coach faced journalists having had no sleep after spending hours replying to messages of consolation on his phone. In an emotional news conference, he defended his players and refused to answer questions on his future, saying, quote, I work for a great group of people. They'll support me in whatever decision we think is right, unquote. <clears throat> Nearly three months later, 
that decision has been made. Middleton will step down after the women's Six Nations. There is little space for romance in sport. All coaches have a shelf life. Eight years in charge of any international side is a great run, and very few would have been given a third shot after losing two World Cup finals. Middleton's impact on rugby union will never be forgotten. He has guided the Red Roses through the most accelerated period of growth in their history and showed the world how an international women's rugby side could be run. His CV is glittering with firsts including bringing together Team GB for the Olympic Sevens debut at Rio in 2016, handing out the first professional contracts to women in the sport, and running the first full-time women's 15s program in the world. Perhaps that success is why the Rugby Football Union have given him a swan song, Six Nations, or perhaps they're waiting for the person they want to replace him. Either way, do not assume this is an automatic fairy tale ending. England's final game of the tournament is their first standalone fixture at Twickenham against a France side who will feel they are due a win against the Red Roses, unquote. So I'm already starting to see the articles speculating about who's going to follow Middleton to this role. Uh, but I will refrain from jumping into that particular conversation. When I do hear something concrete, you can bet I will be sharing it here. Moving on to our thoughts of the week. And my thoughts this week are about the ongoing, frankly, tragedy around the dissolution of Worcester Warriors. Steve Diamond, who has been part of a group uh, bid to take over, was unsurprisingly outraged by the developments this week. Quoting here from geocities.com slash rugby pass, quote, furious Steve Diamond blasts the Atlas plan for Worcester. Steve Diamond has slammed the plan by new owners Jim O'Toole and James Sanford to rebrand Worcester Warriors as Six Ways Rugby, uh, rugby and amalgamate with, uh, I don't know if it's Stourbridge or Stourbridge, I'm going to say Stourbridge RFC, and play in the lower leagues in England. Under pressure to meet an RFU deadline extended to February 14th, the Atlas group decided not to agree to the demands made by English Rugby HQ so that Worcester would be cleared to participate in the 23-24 championship. So instead of paying off the creditors owed after the collapse of the club under previous owners, Colin Goldring, I still can't believe the owner's name was Goldring, and Jason Whittingham, Atlas unveiled a plan on Thursday to shut down the Worcester Warriors business and start up a team with a new name so as to avoid settling the debts accumulated when the club was part of the Gallagher Premiership. Despite allegedly failing an RFU fit and proper test to become owners of Worcester, Atlas remained the preferred bidder of the administrator, uh, Begbie's trainer, <clears throat> pardon me, and a takeover deal was finally announced on February 1st. At the time, it was felt that the agreement paved the way for Worcester to return to rugby at the second-tier championship level next September, but it hasn't turned out that way. The news that the Atlas group had taken over was quickly met by a frosty response from the RFU, who reiterated that its demands had not been met. This was then followed on Thursday by the revelation that Worcester would be binned and that the new owners instead plan to amalgamate with Stourbridge and return to rugby a few grassroots uh, roots leagues below the championship. The outcome didn't sit well with Diamond, who had been director of rugby at Worcester when the club played its final premiership match last September before its collapse. He had quickly hatched his own consortium plan to rescue the Warriors and have them back in business in time for the championship next September. However, Despite passing the RFU fit and proper test and also agreeing to pay every creditor all the money they were owed by the club, the bid that Diamond was involved in lost out to Atlas. He insisted at the time that the announcement <clears throat> that he had no gripe that his consortium had lost out, but he tweeted his disgust on Thursday night after learning that Worcester were no more. Diamond then followed that social media post, uh, post with a passionate six-and-a-half-minute Friday morning interview with Tony McDonald on BBC Hereford and Worcester. <laughs> oh, uh, unquote. It is shocking to me that this is the way this mess has unfolded. Like, 
uh, I've seen a couple of hints that there is more battling to come. So I'm very much trying to stay optimistic, but ugh, the article, by the way, that uh, does include the entire transcript of those six and a half minutes. So if you'd like to read it and hear all the vitriol coming from Steve Diamond, I strongly encourage it. Just follow the link in the show notes. Oy vey. Okay, folks, that does, of course, bring us to our reviews. And pretty quickly, I do want to start with the Rugby Europe Championship action, uh, where we, of course, had four games for round two, starting with Poland versus Portugal, where the Portuguese completely destroyed the Polish, laying a beat down to the tune of 3-65. to 65. Yikes! Next, it was Netherlands versus Georgia, where it was, again, a bit of a rout for the visitors, the Georgians winning easily 8-40. to 40. After that, it was Belgium versus Romania to continue the pattern, with Romania beating the Belsh 5-56. to 56. <laughs> Okay, okay, silly side note. So, several years ago, my brother was in France where he, he was studying medieval art history, and for one semester, he went over to, to Belgium, and when he was telling us that, I said, oh, geez, I, I didn't know you spoke Belsh. To which you replied, um, actually, they speak French in Belgium. So good to know people in your family think you're an idiot, right? <laughs> anyway, the round would end with a fourth away victory. I mean, it's like the anti-top four team. Uh, this time it was Spain dispatching Germany by the closest margin of the weekend, coming away victors 14 to 32. Looking at the table, then it's a bit of a horror show. Definitely a competition of haves and have nots. The have nots are Netherlands and Germany in Pool A, and Belgium and Poland in Pool B, all four of which have zero points for their opening pair of fixtures. The halves then, of course, are Georgia on 10 and Spain on 9 in Pool A, Portugal and Romania both with 10 in Pool B. I had said I was going to try to watch a few of these games and report back, but I'll be honest, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, if any of you listeners want to, you know, make the argument that I should find time to watch somehow, you know, feel free to get in touch. I, I'm, it's certainly possible to convince me, and it's easily possible that I'm missing something very cool. Okay, that of course brings us to round two of the Six Nations tournament, starting from Saturday with Ireland versus France. Ireland. Ranked world number one, were bidding for a record 13th consecutive home win, having started their campaign with a convincing 34-10 away win against Wales last weekend. France were on a record run of 14 consecutive victories under Fabien Galtier and are the last side to have beaten Ireland at the Aviva Stadium in the 2021 Six Nations. They are also the sole top-tier side Farrell has yet to get the better of since he took over after the 2019 Rugby World Cup. Fabian Galtier selected the exact same squad that struggled last week in Rome a bit, while Ireland swapped out Dan Sheehan for Rob Herring, who had been on the bench against Wales. Obviously, for both teams, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This, oh, it was an incredible match, especially in the first 40, when it still felt like it was anyone's game. The ferocity on display was eye-popping and featured you know, some truly remarkable feats of skill and grace as well. Damien Penno, he had the try of the match, probably the weekend, definitely the weekend, turning a pile of crap into gold dust, leaving shocked would-be defenders in his wake while fairly stunning the faithful on hand for perhaps the only time that day. Uh, in case you haven't been paying attention, Penno, he led all Tier 1 nations in try scoring with eight last year while boasting a 79% tackle evasion rate, which for me is unheard of. In other words, please don't try to tackle me. I'm busy scoring right now. So the big talking point in this one had to be Antonio's uh, fully upright death tackle on Herring, for which he was merely given a yellow card, much to the ire of the fans. By the way, I once made Will Owen laugh quite a bit by mentioning how appropriate it is that the abbreviation for Ireland is ire. 
So other players of note, I thought Ringrose was fantastic, getting that late try to remove all doubt of a French resurgence, and even the villainous Thomas Ramos had a beautiful drop goal taken perfectly. Of course, if there was such a thing as a headbutt goal, I'm sure he would have added one or two of those as well. It was an emotional day for Johnny Sexton, who was very worked up during the singing of Ireland's call at the start of the match, and was perhaps more so when he was taken off much earlier than is usual for him. So if you look at the stats real quick, France were definitely the shiftier and more elusive of the two teams, beating 38 defenders to Ireland's 23, while boasting a 91% tackle rate compared to a meager 79% rate for their hosts. Uh, I guess that's what they get for trying to t- tackle Damien Benno. So France also got their penalties back under control, committing just seven after giving away 18 last week. So here's my thing. It was an incredible game. I was on the edge of my seat for the entire way, maybe until the Ringrose try at the 72nd minute, and France lost despite improving many of their problem areas from round one. Despite all that, I think this was a good loss for Les Bleus and a dangerous one for the Irish. Let me explain. So France, as we know, won every single game they played last year. Then they won their first Six Nations match, though unimpressively, and there was a lot of buzz about them garnering another Grand Slam in the lead-up to their home World Cup. That looked like potential disaster to me. Just, you know, just like in the NFL, winning every single game is absurdly difficult. They were on a 14-0 run. If they had romped through the Six Nations, that would be 19 on the bounce as they began a World Cup in their own country, where the pressure would be beyond imagining. Then, going through and beating everyone to win the World Cup, would to me, that just seemed impossible. There's too many X factors, too many uncontrollables, and the pressure of being hosts on top of it, I felt 100% certain that they would have slipped up. Now, South Africa, of course, showed us in 2019, you can lose a game in the pool stages and still win the whole thing, but... You know, that letdown could have derailed the entire thing. For me, they needed a loss at some point. And what better time than playing away at a frenzied Aviva Stadium against the number one ranked team in the world? They weren't technically supposed to win this, with Entomac even calling Ireland heavy uh, favorites heading into the weekend. So this result, I think, is like releasing a pressure valve, while at the same time giving them actual concrete work-ons that will only make them stronger. I even tweeted about this at the time that this is a good, I I just asked, is this a good loss loss for France? And the universal answer I got was nope, just a flat nope. But I'm sticking with my guns on this one. Um, My updated predictions, and I do feel kind of strongly about it, is Ireland to win the Six Nations, likely with a Grand Slam, and France to win the World Cup. As always, all predictions correct or double your money back. In the end, it was an instant classic. Ireland truly on a roll, taking down a very physical French team, 32 to 19 by the very end. So next up was Scotland versus Wales. Scotland made only one change to their squad for round two, bringing Xander Ferguson instead of WP Nell, who shifted over to the bench. That in turn sent Simon Bergen out of the match day 23. Meanwhile, Warren Gatlin really shook things up, clearly looking to get younger for this match, leaving 342 Welsh caps out of the starting squad, just among Alan Wynne-Jones, Justin Tipperick, and uh, Talupi Faletau, though Faletau did retain a spot in the overall 23. It, it feels like old news now, but I was surprised to learn that Gatlin had never lost to Scotland over 10 years of playing them, beating them in this very fixture 10 times and again during an autumn international for a perfect 11-0 record. Man, oh man. So... This feels really odd. As you all know, I support Scotland, so you'd think I would be over the moon with this result, but 
somehow it it kind of felt sad. Like if Scotland had won by way of a last minute kick in a close game, or if it had been a seesaw all day that ended in the home team's favor, you can bet I'd be jumping out of my seat going on and on about it. And it was a big win. And Scotland did look good. But mostly, Wales just kind of looked like garbage. And I, I find that very depressing. The, so the good side of things, Scotland scored five tries en route to a bonus point win, seemed to gain momentum as the game wore on, which was a great sign. The sort of blah game that Finn had last week was made up for with a beauty of a performance, including a few of those, how did he do that, passes that we all love to see. Atua Pilato looked incredible again, showing even more subtle skill. Chris Harris coming off the bench has been a bit of a revelation for both players. Kyle Stain seems to have found a new level getting a brace in this one, and Kinghorn looks very happy and confident coming in for Hogg at 15 and was rewarded with a try as well. Matt Ferguson might be a nominee for absolutely unbelievable player who people don't tend to talk about, and everything about the atmosphere at Murrayfield was incredible. The bad side included Wales scoring even fewer points than the previous week, despite the changes made by Gatlin that many had been calling for. It included Dan Bigger instantly causing people everywhere to look at him with disgust after, A, his performance, and B, cussing out one of their most promising players on live TV. It included the fact that the only points they did get were when they were up a player. There were just so many bad things on display. It felt like a big kid beating up a little kid while the entire school watched. It's just not what top-level competitive rugby is supposed to look like, I guess. And now today there's a huge buzz ugh, about Welsh players potentially going on strike before the match against England when they come back to Cardiff. Just an absolute dumpster fire right now. And as someone who is friendly with several Welsh supporters, including a supporter of this very show, quick shout out to you, John, it just hurts my feelings to watch them right now. I always loved the fact that Wales could punch way above their weight when you consider population size and all the rest. And now everything seems in complete disarray. Wales fans, I'm genuinely sorry for how this is going right now. Neither you nor the players deserve to be going through all this nonsense. In any event, I can't lie and say I'm unhappy that Scotland won. They're now 2-0 and to start uh, this tournament for the first time in the history of it being the Six Nations. The fans are ecstatic. The players look more confident and competent then I can recall seeing them as a squad. There's genu- you know, genuinely something magical going on there. I find it odd, though, that so many people who have been calling for, uh, for Gregor's head suddenly can't say enough glowing stuff about him. Um, but anyway, I don't like to quibble with optimism. Um, quick side note. On the Blood and Mud podcast this week, Lee and Will finally hit the nail on the head when it comes to Finn. It's something I had really struggled to put into words, and big shock, they did it for me. Uh, They said he looks like the only player out there who was just happy to be playing a game. And that's it. Exactly. Uh, They used the example of the time he accidentally kicked a ball into touch and then immediately started giggling about it. It, Like as if he's not in the most prestigious tournament in the world playing top tier test rugby. He's just a guy playing a game he loves. And that's the way he always approaches it. It's really a beautiful thing. So in any event, as I said, it it was a sad beatdown for, or a masterclass, maybe a combination of both. I'm kind of leaning towards the former. It was the Scots taking a famous victory at home by a five-fold ratio, 35 to 7 at the end. Here's hoping there is some, any kind of good news in the near future for Welsh fans. Good luck to y'all. Then, of course, on Sunday, it was England versus Italy, and I'm going to level with you guys. I didn't much enjoy this game. In fact, I didn't enjoy it one bit. England, of course, got a predictable win, having literally never lost to Italy in their entire history. 
Italy looked, well, pretty bad, frankly. Uh, but as they've been trending upwards so much lately, I do think we can all give them a pass for one week. Um, this is kind of embarrassing here. I had started to write down, oh, yes, but Italy were, were without the, ser- uh, the services of Sergio Parise, who, and I swear, I was under the impression I thought he was coming back for one last hurrah. I thought I'd specifically read that and that the team was kind of waiting for him. I totally missed the fact that he slammed that particular door shut 11 days ago. Quoting here from Planet Rugby, quote, on Monday, a brief press release announced that Italy's greatest and the most capped Six Nations player of all time, Sergio Parise, would retire at the end of the season. Short, to the point, and without hyperbole. For many within the rugby media, Parise has been a constant of our careers, providing rugby watchers over an astonishing 19 years at the pinnacle of the sport with passion, brilliance, frustration, and admiration in equal measure. Rugby won't be the same without him, nor will the many pub and social media arguments (laughs) trying to assess just how special a performer the big Azuri has been, unquote. Got to admit, I was saddened by this, a bit embarrassed that I'd been anxiously awaiting a return that was never going to come. In any event, the Azuri seemed rudderless at Twickenham, but I mean, maybe they were in shock that people are actually still continue, continuing to sing Swing Low, for God's sake. I mean, it's enough already. Give it up. Stop it. Anyway, England, they look pretty good, I guess. Despite my personal preference for Marcus Smith at 10, I do think the team kind of looked more comfortable with the human guillotine in that position. Um, I watched this one with my BFF, who was actually over to watch the Super Bowl later on, as well as this game. And at one point she said, why is everyone on England named Ollie? Which had me absolutely rolling. Um, Harry Arundel, he sealed the deal on on the uh, on England's fifth try of the match with just ten minutes left. And does anyone else think that Arundel sounds like a country in like a YA fantasy novel? I am Prince Harry of Arundel, and this is my sweet chariot. <laughs> anyway, uh, one good thing was Maro Atoje. He sort of reappeared. I, I feel like he dipped off the radar pretty badly over the last. I don't know five or six months, but on Sunday, he was everywhere, causing chaos, generally making things miserable for the visitors. Technically, Italy outscored England in the second half, but never gave the impression of being close. And when the fans had finished their eighth pints of the day, the final score read 31 to 14 in their team's favor. So just quickly, that does leave Ireland and Scotland as the only unbeaten sides, each with the full 10 points. Ireland edging the uh, Scotland out by three points, in the points differential, England is next on the table with six, followed by France, who are actually negative eight in points differential after a disappointing first round and lackluster second. Then, oh my word, it's Italy in fifth place by virtue of a single table point. And last, in this case, certainly least, at least at the moment, Wales sit firmly in contention for the wooden spoon with zero points and a thousand issues. I'll be rooting for them on the 25th when they're back home if they don't strike. And if they do strike, I'll also be rooting for them, by the way. Um, But the following round might be their only hope. That won't be easy uh, away in Rome. This tournament never wants for drama. That is for damn sure. Well, my friends, by that music... You will, of course, know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. And this week, the award goes to Kalen Doris. Mr. Doris, 
in a game that had everything you did it all, putting the capper on your player of the match performance with an incredible offload to the man we now know is capable of levitation, James Lowe, as well as for your gorgeous assist for Gary Ringrose right towards the end. The Telegraph this week implied you might be even better than Ardi Savia, which of course is sacrilege here in the Scrum of the Earth, but that doesn't take away from a performance for the ages. Kalen Doris, congratulations to you, for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Well done, sir. Okay, so looking at our updates and previews, Okay, there is an almost stupid amount of rugby coming our way next week with the top 14, the Premiership, and the URC all swinging back into their regular schedule and with the addition of the brand new season of Major League Rugby. Not only that, the next week after that features the return of Super Rugby Pacific. Ooh, that's going to be so good. And then in March, we've got the Women's Six Nations. Oh my gosh. In fact, there is so much rugby coming. I really want to ask you, the listeners, what you think. We've settled into a you know a pretty good groove here with the weekly episodes being a half hour long. Adding two more leagues to the coverage in the next few weeks before also adding the Women's Six Nations will make that time frame pretty difficult, to put it lightly. So I would love to get your take. And as always, you have plenty of ways to get in touch. So should we, here's my big question, I guess. Should we, A, Continue the coverage as it is, which will inherently make for longer episodes. B, split the weekly show in two, covering half the action with each piece. Or C, pick one competition on which to concentrate each each week, giving the others sort of a back seat, maybe even just doing scores and or table updates. And, you know, there might even be a fourth option I haven't thought of. So, you know, do me a favor, reach out to me, tell me what you think is best. I'm very open to suggestions. Okay. So, as I mentioned, this coming weekend, the Top 14 gets back to its usual six on Saturday and one on Sunday schedule, starting with Bayonne versus Stade Francais at 9 a.m. where I am, followed by future home of Semi-Randrandra, Lyon, who will host Montpellier, then it's Cast versus La Rochelle, Perpignan versus Poe, Racing 92 versus Breve, and a clash between two teams that bear the same first five letters in a row, Toulon versus Toulouse. Sunday, we'll have Bordeaux-Begla versus Claremont, my good old Border Beagles, to finish off round 18 of 26. So, in the Premiership, where the fixtures are 2-2-1 for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it'll feature Bristol Bears versus uh, Newcastle Falcons, Gloucester versus Harlequins, Bath versus London Irish, oh, stinker, um, Northampton versus Sale, and then finally, Leicester versus Saracens. Very interesting matchup, that one. In the URC, we have two Friday games, both of which are intriguing, with Munster hosting Ospreys and the streaking Glasgow Warriors welcoming Ulster to Scotson. Um, Saturday, it's two South African derbies in a row with Lions versus Sharks and Bulls versus Stormers. Before we have Zebra, still looking for that first win on this year, this time at home for Connacht. Then it's Scarlets versus Edinburgh, Cardiff versus Benetton, and finally, it's Sandblaster versus Saltine, uh, I mean, uh, Leinster versus Dragons at the RDS. By the way, after I had already sort of finished putting this together, I noticed that a little headline that said, Warren Gatlin is not releasing any Welsh players for this round. So, oh my gosh, Leinster versus Dragons? Yikes. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, this is also the opening weekend of Major League Rugby here in the United States. I mean, in Canada, kind of. <laughs> to get us started, we're going to have two Friday fixtures, those being Atlanta at home for Toronto, or as we call them, Free Jacks North. Um, NOLA welcoming my Free Jacks back to the gold mine, while on Saturday, Old Glory DC will host the inaugural match of the newly minted Chicago Hounds. 
Then it's San Diego home for Utah. Seattle versus the New Jersey. What should we call ourselves next year's round one of this year's competition will close out on Sunday with a Texas Derby with a new look Dallas Jackals team hosting the Houston Thundercats. Very, very exciting. We've of course also got the rugby Europe, uh, the rugby Europe championship continuing to roll on Saturday. will bring us Germany versus Netherlands, Spain versus Georgia and Poland versus Belgium. And then on Saturday we have Portugal hosting Romania to finish out the third round in that competition. Phew. Well, my friends, that does it for another week here, and I am totally exhausted. You know, for years, I I always wanted the Six Nations to be five weeks right in a row, but I have come to value these mini breaks, and frankly, I could use it. So, as always, thanks again for coming along to all of you across the globe. Cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well.